The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. I invite you to turn in your scriptures to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. And it's also on your outlines. And if you saw your outlines, they have a a wall of text on the front of them, the entirety of the chapter. That doesn't mean we're going to cover every verse this morning, but it's very important that we take this particular chapter uh, as a whole uh, to understand it, at least attempt to understand what is a a difficult passage. A few years ago, I was in uh, North Carolina, and I was driving through the countryside of North Carolina, and I noticed these promotional billboards that they had everywhere, where they would uh, use these billboards to promote tourism to some of the the cities of North Carolina. And one of them in, in particular caught my eye. It said this. It said, Asheville, prepare to be surprised. And I thought, I don't know what that means. In fact, that makes no sense. Because if you are prepared, you won't be surprised, right? And if you're surprised, then, then you weren't really prepared. And yet, when we come to Mark chapter 13, when we come to, uh, or the parallel passages in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, these are passages uh, about the end of all things, the return of our Lord. And when we come to these passages, this is actually the instruction of Jesus. He says, prepare to be surprised. Prepare to be surprised. Though he is uh, crucified, resurrected, and ascended to heaven, uh, part of our faith, a core part of our faith, is that he is returning. He's coming back, and when he does, he will come back unexpectedly, visibly, just as he, he left, as Acts chapter 1 tells us, physically and suddenly. And when he does, the warning of the scriptures and the warning this morning in this passage is that, that many will be found unready for his return asleep at his coming, yet those that are prepared will be the ones that are found active in his work, relying on his Holy Spirit to sustain them through trial and opposition and living out this great commission, prepared. This morning I said we we come to a difficult passage. I think this is maybe the most difficult passage in the entire Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 13, and I know uh, you're tired of hearing my excuses. We're going to get into it and, and, and read it, but this is the apocalyptic teaching of Jesus. This is a prophetic teaching in which he is going to describe events that will occur in less than 50 years as Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. And he will simultaneously mix in language from the Old Testament, prophets about the coming day of the Lord, and he'll also talk about his return at the end of the age as he will return just as he left. But the, the events that precede that are difficult to understand through our dim lenses. And so Jesus is going to use uh, language that his hearers would have understood better. The disciples who were steeped in Jewish literature in the Old Testament prophets, they would have been more familiar with some of this language, but he's describing it, and, and, and I warn you, it's difficult to understand. I liken it to this. When Jesus was born, there were numerous prophecies about his birth, a, a lot of different prophecies before he came into the world to fulfill them, and they would have been hard to reconcile with each other, impossible to tie them all together. He's going to be born of a virgin but he's also going to be a son of the house of David. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, yet according to the rabbinic writings, he would be a Nazarene. He's going to come out of Egypt as a child. All this stuff wouldn't make a lot of sense on its own until Jesus comes and he fulfills all of it perfectly. And then we see, wow, that's how it all tied together. Now we see clearly, and and this is my encouragement to you, is that there will come a day when we see all these things clearly. But for now, as we look through this dark glass, we will endeavor by the help of God's Holy Spirit to hold fast to what is clear from the word of God in this passage. Namely, that he is coming back, 
and that his return will be preceded by increasing tribulation, persecution, false teaching, things for us to be aware of, and that those that endure to the end will be saved. I'm going to read, I think, probably 13 of these 37 verses, but let's, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 13. It says, And he came, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." Let's pray. Can we just pray again? That'd be great. Heavenly Father, I, th I pray that you would give us understanding as we seek to, to wrestle with this word. It's a difficult word, Lord. And we pray that you would, through this word, encourage and strengthen us as believers, that we might take heart and not be anxious about what is to come, Lord, that we might uh, take courage in the fact that your spirit is with us, that you dwell within us, Lord. And I pray that you would empower us as a church, as a people for an effective ministry, no matter what may come our way. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder this morning, does anyone here have bifocal lenses? Anyone? Anyone? Yes, we got one, two, three, four, five. Okay, thank you for being here today. Can you all come up to the front? I'm just kidding, don't do that. Um, let's put up a picture of, of those bifocal lenses. This is, I think, helpful for us to understand this passage a little bit better. Ben Franklin, I guess, invented these kinds of things. And what they are, if you don't know, is, is bifocals allow you through the top half of the lens to see more clearly long distances. And then the bottom half of the lens allows you to see clearly at close distances for things like reading. And this passage that we're going to be looking at today and for the next couple of weeks, it actually it requires a bifocal perspective because we're going to see in it future events, events that have not yet happened, and then we will also see events that happened back in the first century in the lifetime of the apostles. And these will be intermingled in this passage. And this is the most eschatological of all of Jesus' teachings. Eschatology is just an expensive word, which means the study of, of the last things, okay? That's all that is. But he will also talk primarily in, in this first part of the teaching and, and when we get to the later verses about near things, about things that will happen within his generation, within about 50 years of when he teaches this. And so the challenge for the reader is to know which part of the lens should we be looking through as we understand this teaching. 
And so I'll do my best to walk you through it. it going back to verse 1, it says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his, his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. Remember, Jesus has been teaching in the temple in Jerusalem. He's been going day after day during this Passover week leading up to his crucifixion, and he has been teaching within this, this magnificent, ornate structure. If you remember the history of it, Solomon built, this, built a temple for the Lord, and it was beautiful. One of the most beautiful buildings that had ever been made. It was uh, covered in gold and precious stones and all kinds of fine materials. But it, it stood only for about 400 years before the Babylonians came along and, and destroyed it completely as the people of Judah were taken into exile. About 50 years passes and many of the Jewish exiles return to Jerusalem to find the temple and the walls in, in ruins. And their governor, Zerubbabel, which is a great name, Zerubbabel, leads a massive reconstruction effort to, to rebuild the temple, while Nehemiah leads an effort to rebuild the walls. And God commends their effort, and he, he supplies, and he protects them, and he, he, he sees it through. And the prophets, we read, they, they honor the work of Zerubbabel. But when the construction is, is finished, maybe you'll remember this, the people that are old enough to remember Solomon's temple, they look upon this essentially cinder block box that Zerubbabel's built, and they just weep. They weep in remembrance of what was. And now this is wonderful, but it's so far from what was. And yet, this is the very temple structure in which the King of Kings, the Messiah, will walk nearly 500 years later. A lot has changed since then. When Jesus comes to Jerusalem, when his ministry begins, Herod the Great is finishing up construction of a massive renovation of the temple complex. He's known as Herod the Great, not because he was a good king. We know he was actually a tyrant, but he was a great builder and architect. And his goal was to make Jerusalem the centerpiece of the ancient world, to make the Temple Mount one of the great wonders of the world, and he succeeded. It was uh, truly magnificent. He covers Zerubbabel's old structure with fine marble, with gold. He expands the outer courts with great stones. I want you to picture the shipping containers that are out in the yard of the church. Stones that size, creating the, the foundation for this great temple court. Towers, porticos, a marketplace, massive staircases, gates of gold, whitewashed stone that would make the temple complex almost blinding during the sunrise hours. The city would look like a snow-capped peak to those that saw it in the distance. This was truly an architectural wonder, the center of Jewish life, and, and it would be deemed virtually indestructible. Nobody could touch this place. And yet, as the disciples are marveling at this, and rightfully so, they're saying, Lord, look at these great stones. This is really something, isn't it? And Jesus says to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is a startling prediction from Jesus. This is something that would have disturbed his, his hearers. It would have been scandalous to the Jewish audience and confusing. But the tragic reality is, is that these prophetic words from Jesus came true. Less than 50 years after the ascension of Jesus, there was a Jewish uprising against the occupying Romans, and the Roman armies returned to Jerusalem after being driven out, and at the command of their emperor Titus, they surround the city and they lay siege to it in AD 70. I'm not going to go into the horrendous details, but this was a truly catastrophic event. Because what we'll see in the following verses next week that we'll come to is that Jesus warns the people. He says, when you see this coming, flee. Get out of the city. Go to the hills. This, uh, pray that, that this doesn't happen in winter or on a Sabbath so you can get out of here as fast as you can. Because what happens is horrendous. Instead of listening to the instruction of Jesus, the, the crowds in the countryside, they actually crowd into the city. 
The population of the city swells with over a million people as it's surrounded by Titus's armies. And all Titus has to do is cut off their water supply, cut off their food supply, and wait. And he waits, and he waits. And finally, the city falls. And when it falls, 97,000 Jewish people are taken captive. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that 1.1 million Jewish people died in the siege. That is an absolutely staggering number. There is, is no other single event in world history that we know of with this kind of mass casualties in one location. And there has not been since. I want to give you some just examples of this. This is nearly double the casualties suffered in the American Civil War. This is more than Stalingrad, the bloodiest battle of World War II. This is double the amount of people who died when bombs fell on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Utter decimation. Jesus is not exaggerating when he details how great this tribulation will be for those that are there in Judea at this time. And, and the disciples are sitting there in stunned silence as they leave the city, as they're looking back from the Mount of Olives on the city, and he says, this all is going to fall. And they, they, they don't say, no, this can't be. You're mistaken. You're, you're wrong about this. They look at the city and they look with sorrow. And as he sits down on the Mount of Olives, on Mount Olivet, where they can see the temple Beautiful, shining in the distance. Peter and James and John draw near to him and ask him, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the signs when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But then he says, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And then listen to this. He says, these are but the beginning of the birth pains or birth pangs. I have four young children of my own. I'm still right in the midst of that baby rearing stage of life. So this idea of labor contraction, this is actually very familiar to me. Okay, don't object. It's more familiar to my wife, okay, than it is to me. But whenever, for some reason, I've noticed this, whenever a group of young moms gets together, they inevitably do this, this strange thing where they begin to detail, they take turns detailing their birth stories. Have you noticed that? Why do you do that? I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> it's, it's natural versus cesarean. Mine was for two hours. Mine was for two days. It's, it's I had an epidural. Oh, I didn't have an epidural. Or I meant to have an epidural, but we never got around to it. And, and all these things. And what we know from these stories is that no birth plays out exactly the same way. When a child is, is born into the world, though, you can generally, generally expect a few things. Number one, that the birth will be preceded by painful contractions. Painful contractions. And some of these will not even be signs of real labor. There's something called Braxton Hicks contractions, which are a sign of false labor. But when the labor actually begins, there will be painful contractions. Secondly, these contractions increase in frequency. They increase in longevity. They become longer in duration. And they increase in intensity. This is a very helpful picture that Jesus is, is giving us. Stay with me. Birth is preceded by painful contractions that increase in frequency, longevity, and intensity. Thirdly, the, the total length of the labor is unpredictable. Fourthly, the end of the labor will be the most painful and the most intense moment. And then lastly, the birth of a healthy, beautiful child makes it all worth it. Right? It makes it all worth it. 
This is a fascinating word picture from, from Jesus. He's saying that as wars and famines and division and fear arise, these are like the beginning pains of birth. And in just a few years, as, as Jerusalem does fall and the temple is destroyed and great anguish comes upon Israel, that is both a present reality, something that will happen very soon as they look through the bottom half of the bifocals, but it's also a type. It is a model, a precursor to other contractions, other tribulations that will come in the future with increasing frequency, longevity, and intensity, but the outcome will be the return of our Lord, new life. The outcome is worth waiting for and enduring for. Nobody knows when Christ will return, yet as we look forward to it, we ought to look forward to it with hope, and we can see its nearings, nearing by the inevitable and unmistakable pangs of birth. And so for the for the Christian, this is the question we have to ask, is how then shall we live? Knowing this, having this information, how will we live? We know he's returning. We don't know when, but we know that there is going to be much to endure until he does. And he says this. He says, here's how I want you to be ready. He says, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Later, he's going to say, stay awake. Stay awake. For they will deliver you over to councils, you'll be beaten in synagogues, you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you're to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Remembering our bifocal perspective of this passage, we need to know that each of these difficult teachings, whether from Jesus on the Mount of Olivet or Paul to the Thessalonians or Peter to the dispersion or John in his revelation on the island of Patmos, all of these teachings would have been near, nearsighted or, or short-term instruction and encouragement for believers of that day. They would have heard this and read this and, and felt this is for us. This is for us. This will help us, and, and this would have really helped them and encouraged them as they suffered through the fall of Jerusalem, as they suffered through the persecution of Nero in Rome. And for them, knowing what hardship awaited would be challenging, but to know, to be warned ahead of time, would give them hope. And to know that they would have the very Spirit of God to bear witness for them, that would give them the ability to joyfully endure and to proclaim the gospel unrelentingly. And for those disciples, we see that that's actually exactly what came to pass in their generation, much of it immediately after Pentecost. The gospel goes forth to all the nations. Three a thousand are, are, are come to faith in Christ on that day of Pentecost, and we know from that day of Pentecost that the, the disciples are speaking in languages from all over the world. And so these Jewish people from the dispersion of all over the world are there in the city, and they go out again bringing the gospel with them to the far reaches of the known world. Within just decades, the gospel will go to the entire Western world and beyond. And we, we saw this as we studied through Acts. But Paul and the other apostles, as they arrive in cities expecting to, to plant churches or bring the gospel, they find it's already there. That there are already Christians in those cities because of ordinary believers who have gone out long before the apostles arrived. What we see is also that this persecution, this hardship, literally comes to pass as well for the disciples. Peter and John, they're delivered over to councils. They are, are, are beaten in the temple. Paul is dragged as a prisoner before governors and kings. Stephen is stoned to death by his kinsmen. Yet in all of it, the Holy Spirit speaks powerfully through them. And though they are hated for the sake of the name of Jesus, many turn to salvation at their witness. And their endurance is rewarded with heavenly commendation. 
So this is the short term. This is the near view. But now let's look through the long distance lens of the bifocals. All of this, just as it was a relevant warning for the early Christians, has continued to strengthen the church for generations. And we need this word now. Be on your guard. Stay awake. Be found ready for his return. As believers, we have salvation from sin through the cross. We have eternal life through the resurrection. There is hope even in the brokenness of this present world that it will all be restored and made new in Christ's final return. But the question is, are we ready? Are we in a state of, of preparation or not? I can remember a few years ago, uh, I think it was when the, the global pandemic was, we were just starting to hear rumors of this. And, and I was doing what a husband and wife often will do in the evening, sitting in front of the TV, aimlessly searching for something to watch until you finally just watch The Office again, right? No, no, on this occasion, we decided we're going to do something else. And for whatever reason, maybe it's because of what was going on in the news of the day, we click on this show called Doomsday Preppers. Have any of you heard of this? Any of you heard of this show? Any of you on that show? Uh, in that show, apparently, what people do is they, they will prep for things like zombie attacks or the singularity when AI takes over, which is, you know, creepy, but uh, economic collapse. So what they do is they'll, they'll build shelters, they'll collect canned goods and water. And, um, and we were watching this for about two minutes, and then my wife says, like, she says something like this. This is so sad. These people are wasting so much of their lives just worrying instead of living. And I look at her and I say, and we're sitting here watching them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so... We turned it off. Um, but I think what that moment for us illustrated is, is basically there are, there are a couple of different reactions. I think though in that, there are, those are two of the primary reactions, the, the two extremes that people fall into when it comes to this issue of, of the end of all things. And for the believer, that is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ to consummate his everlasting kingdom, his kingdom that he has already inaugurated. And when it comes to how we think about these kinds of statements about Christ's return and, and the coming of the end times in Mark chapter 13 and Matthew 24, I think there are three primary reactions. No doubt there are more, but, but we'll just walk through these three and then we'll conclude with the time of response and communion. The first reaction that, that we see is, number one, anxiety. Anxiety. We read these passages that are difficult to understand and then they can frighten us. And when I say this, I, I don't mean the kind of generalized anxiety that most of us deal with on a daily basis. I don't mean just that, that anxious feeling that you have in your body when you, when you don't get enough rest or you're not eating well or your relationships are falling apart. No, no, no. I mean anxiety specifically about the last days a preoccupation with, with that, that kind of material preparation and not necessarily that spiritual preparation. And this is not just Christians either. I've recently had conversations with, with people who are not believers who are very worried about the state of the world. They look around and they, they read about AI and they read about the, the war in Ukraine and all, all these kinds of things and, and the, the economy not being what they hope it would be and uh, lots of anxiety, lots of anxiety. For believers, what that can lead us to is an obsession with eschatology, an obsession with the study of the last things. And, and so maybe that's you. You've been to all the conferences. You've got the detailed charts of what day and what time and, and, and all the things that you'll see before he re returns. And it's actually just made you fearful and worried. And if this is you, you may not be a full-on doomsday prepper, though. If you have your stuff together, that's actually awesome, good for you. But maybe you've got your bug out bag, your, your canned goods, your backyard shelter. Maybe you've, you've started to fatten up your pets for whatever reason. Uh, you've, convinced, you've convinced your wife that, that a dairy cow would make a great house pet. Um, 
And actually, the unfortunate truth is that there are a, a myriad of, of so-called Christian authors and speakers who make their living on stirring up fear and anxiety among believers. They, they make their living talking about the impending last days in a way that, that's spooky and disturbing on purpose. Yet the fact of the scriptures is that we have been in the last days since Jesus came. And since he inaugurated his kingdom and the timing of his consummation, uh, the second coming of his kingdom is not given to us. When will this happen? It's a wonderful question. We'll come back to that in the coming weeks. But in all this, I want you to hold this in your mind, jumping all the way down to verse 32. He says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Can you all say no one? No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven. Listen to this. Nor the son. It's a mystery. But only the father Be on guard then. He doesn't say tune out. He says be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. No one knows the day or the hour in which this will occur. But what Jesus has given us is instruction so that we can endure and be found prepared no matter what. And don't we want to live prepared even for the mission now? Not just for his return, but for the work that he has for us to do now. In fact, those that are found ready will be the ones that are active in his work even now. Yet when we come to these kinds of passages and this kind of instruction, it can cause us to be fearful. But to the believer, what what Jesus indicates is that fear is not to be the prevailing condition of our hearts. That is not what ought to govern the way that we live. Even in great tribulation, even if the worst comes, he says, I will give you my spirit to speak for you. The one who endures to the end will be saved. In fact, for those that are in Christ, this can be hard to grasp when we're overcome by fear and anxiety. But for those that are in Christ, we actually can look forward with hope to his coming, with joy to his coming. To know that that means that the making of all things new, the restoration of all that has been broken, a day, as Revelation 21 tells us, in which Jesus will stand before us, he will wipe every tear from our eyes, and there will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Those things will pass away in the fullness of his presence. You need not fear because Jesus wins the victory and the kingdom of God will reign for eternity. One attitude that we can have when it comes to these things is anxiety. The second uh, is apathy. Apathy. And maybe this is more common, actually. The anxiety might be becoming more common in our, our current era. But this idea of apathy is instead of living in light of the fact that Christ is returning physically, visibly, imminently, that means at any moment we comfort ourselves by saying, well, if it didn't happen in the last 2,000 or so years, it's probably not going to happen for a while. And that's certainly potentially true. But apathy is an unacceptable attitude for the believer, and it's characterized by, by three things. It's laziness in our personal relationship with Jesus. Like it's just not important to us. Though the King of Kings desires to spend time with us, he desires for us to to stay connected with him in abiding relationship, it's an afterthought for us. Apathy is characterized by a lack of urgency in our evangelism. I will share this good news sometime with somebody, but not anytime soon. And thirdly, a comfortable unrepentance in patterns of sin. That's apathy. I know this is wrong. I know this is destroying me. I know this this actually has the potential to to ruin not just my marriage or my family, but my witness in the name of Jesus to be dragged through the mud because of this. But I'm going to cling on to it. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not going to turn from it. And we believe the lie that hiding in our sin is is better 
than repenting and turning and letting the light of the gospel into these situations. Apathy leads us to a comfortable unrepentance in our patterns of sin. And, and our Lord who loves us wants better for us than that. And so this morning we have to ask ourselves, am I living an apathetic spiritual life? Is God getting my, my leftovers? Or am I living as if there's kingdom work to be done here and now? Am I living in pursuit of him and his work? Now, that doesn't always mean uh, selling everything and moving to Africa, although it might. But for most of you, the question is, is much closer to home. Are you living for Jesus in your home? This is something that my wife and I were wrestling with just, just yesterday. It's, it's, is Jesus the most important thing? Do our kids know? Are, are we training them in the fear of the Lord? Do you know your neighbors? Are you sharing the good news of salvation with your, your friends and coworkers and family? If so, praise God. And my goal is not to, to beat you up and make you feel bad if you're not. Today, perhaps, will be the day that we simply draw near to our loving Father who wants the best for us and to go to him, and perhaps through a time of prayer or fasting, to confess what's going on in your life, to confess your apathy and, and to invite God to use you, to empower you by his spirit to get back in the game. I confess, I'm often apathetic. Even though I'm in ministry and I'm a pastor, I'm often apathetic. And God is unbelievably gracious. He is so patient with us. But he has made me, he has made us, he has made you for more. There is kingdom work to be done. And by his Spirit's power, he wants us as citizens and ambassadors to participate in that work and to be found ready for his return. The third response we can have to these things is, number three, anticipation. Anticipation that results in action. Investing in relationship with Jesus, living for Jesus, sharing Jesus with others. There will be a day when he returns. And for the believer, that will ultimately be a, do a day of joy and celebration. So be not anxious. Be not apathetic. Anticipate. Look forward to it. Look forward to it. And in looking forward to it, prepare yourself. Abide in him and take action to live out his mission to go into all the world and to make disciples. That's what it's all about. That is the kind of investment that the master will look for from those that he has entrusted with this gospel message. And even as you stand up to increasing pressure and persecution, and we'll, we'll come back to this next week, but know this, his spirit is with you. His spirit is with you to endure until he returns to make all things new. Let's pray, and then I'm going to invite Pastor Milton to come up. He's going to lead us in a response of, of communion. If you didn't have an opportunity, you can get the communion elements at the back. Heavenly Father, help this word to sink in. Whatever is of you, Lord, help that to sink in. Whatever is of, of Mark, Lord, let that be forgotten. But what is from your gospel, we pray that, that it would change us, that it would renew our minds, and Lord, I pray for this church today, for each person here, each person within the sound of my voice or watching online, Lord, that by your spirit you would comfort us so that we are not anxious. You would embolden us so we are not apathetic. And you would empower us so that we might live out your mission in anticipation of our master's return. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.